Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Working class on DeerCast, another episode. Uh, I'm Kurt Geyer, co-hosting. Austin Chandler. Thanks for making it from your farm schedule. Well, I got lucky. I got a little bit of a rain delay, so. Got lucky. Got lucky for the podcast. Right. <laughs> and then we have an in-studio guest today, Chase Burns. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining us, man. You're uh, in our area. You're like a household name in the deer hunting community, whether you think so or not. I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't think so. No, you are. Uh, everyone knows you through like land guys as a as an agent and selling hunting ground. And you know, I'm no, I, before I met you, I knew you as a guy who killed big deer through the rumor mill of where we're at. Well, those are just rumors. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they are. You're humble, um, but you're a guy that's very knowledgeable on hunting ground in general. Um, property management. I mean, I've, I consider you as a connoisseur of just land management and land in general. Is that fair? I Yeah. I mean, you do something all the time, you know, mm -hmm. 365, and I guess you just, you don't, I don't think about that that's all I do or all I think about, but yeah, I mean, yeah, that's when you do it for a living, it's, uh, it, you, I guess you should hope that you become kind of householder. That's what, when they hear your name, that's what they think about because yeah. I guess what else would they be thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, how did you get into that? Like the land sales thing or just kind of gaining more knowledge on property management, if you will, just kind yeah. of give a little background for people who are unfamiliar. Sure. Yep. So um, I grew up kind of around real estate because both my folks sold real estate for 25 or 30 years from like junior high, high school, whatever. So real estate chat was just, you know, dinner table talk every night and that sort of thing. So it, just, yeah. it always just kind of seemed second place to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I grew up hunting and and uh just wanting to do nothing other than be outside all the time and uh you know my folks were good about telling me hey you really need to go to college but i i was 
a smart kid that hated school. So I, I get like, that. <laughs> I didn't want to go to college, but I, I was like, all right, well, if I got to go, you know, and I got to pay for it because they sure weren't going to pay my way. It was right. like, I better study something that I really love mm-hmm. uh, or otherwise I just won't see it through. So, um, so I went to Southern Illinois University and studied wildlife biology. And, uh, you know, about the time uh, I went, like everybody does with thinking, well, I don't care how much money I make doing this. It's just, you know, days are short and life is short and whatever. So I want to do something that I love and mm-hmm. then, you know, I, I won't regret it or whatever. For sure. But, but about my senior year, I was watching these kids get out of, of school right ahead of me. I had a lot of buddies that were like a year older and they were going to work for like NWTF or Ducks Unlimited and these other groups that, yeah. uh, NGOs that, you know, working 60 hours a week and making less than $30,000 a year. And it could be tough. Like, I'm already making more than that, just doing carpentry stuff, construction, working on the side, trying to pay my way through school. I was like, why? This is crazy. So yeah. That's when I got to the point where I was like, okay, I, I don't care what I do eight hours a day. If, you know, I could go mop floors, but if I can make enough money that I can afford to buy my own farm and do these things that I love doing on my own and have a place for my kids to grow up and enjoy doing those things. So yeah. that became like total flip-flop uh, in my priorities was like not so much caring that I work in that career field as long as I'm able to do those things on my own. So for sure, for a while, when I got out of school, I was buying, uh, repo houses with my brother and my dad and we were, you know, buying, working on houses and reselling and kind of dabbling in real estate doing that. But then I was working uh, full time in construction and, and that sort of stuff. So Mm -hmm. deviated from it for a while out of college. Uh, and I, you know, I love the idea even then of selling farms and thinking, man, you know, I could real estate's cool. I could do that, but, I didn't want to work out of the same office as my parents <laughs> yeah, and, understand and I so, didn't yeah. want to compete against, you know, I, so I was like, uh, it just didn't seem like the right, right Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad retired out of it, you know, probably seven, eight, nine years ago now. And then that's when I was kind of like, all right, well, maybe I can still, I can jump into that. So right. did it. Uh, and, uh, once I got going on it, just never looked back and had a really good job aside from that, that I was like, see you later. <laughs> and, there, and everyone thought you were crazy. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. You know how that is. Yeah, it, I do. It just, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, it went back to the mentality of like, life is too short to be doing something every day that I absolutely hate. You know, yep. if I can yeah. make a living doing this, then let's do it. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, you know, for the last nine years or so, that's been what it is. Full-time land management, land sales, and it's, it ain't easy. It's a roller coaster, but yeah. it's, I love it. Yeah, It's cool because I feel, you know, talking to you, you knowing that you have experience with it, because we've, we're, we're working together on some things, which I think will come out um, in the show eventually here, um, stuff we're working on, but it's cool talking to you and getting to know you because land and real estate is always something that's been very intimidating to me because it seems such big scale and kind of like, I don't know what the term is, big money. I don't know. Big money, big scale. It's It's intimidating. It's intimidating. For sure. And Chandler, you're kind of like my land, um, uh, what am I, where am I going? Shaman. Shaman. Land shaman. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the word I was looking for, but I like that better than what I was searching mentor? for. Mentor? <laughs> mentor. Thank you, Chase. Shaman, mentor. Okay. Something like that. But, you know, Austin, you know a bunch about land and you've done a lot of property management and killed some big deer. And that's why I wanted you to co-host this episode with me because we can tap into maybe a little more knowledge that Chase has that I might not be able to get into yep. by myself. But, um, yeah, just talking with you and like asking you questions about what what will you do here, and I'm just thinking of stuff and future podcasts that we're going to do that can tap into certain areas. Um, 
But I guess just with your experience, let's do something for the DeerCast listeners on this one because a lot of guys are either, if they can't get a small piece, they're probably hunting a small piece, Mm -hmm. whether it's a small lease or a permission piece or whatever it might be. People typically aren't hunting huge tracts of ground. Most guys aren't and gals aren't. Um, And a lot of people are wanting to do food plots and anything they can do to start dabbling into land management type things. What are some things, I don't know if we want to take a certain X size property, whether it's 40 acres or whatever, or bigger or smaller, what's something you see people normally jump to first and what would you recommend they jump to first? Like, I guess I asked two questions in one. Food plots, everyone jumps to food plots. Yeah, Is that always the right move for a smaller piece? No, not in my opinion. Um, I mean, you know, it's natural that that's the first thing they want to do. So first to identify what size pieces we're talking about in this area in the Midwest, I would say uh, anything under about 50 acres is kind of what we we call a starter farm. Yeah. A lot of those are 20 to 40. Uh, It's big enough to hunt. It might hunt with one or maybe two guys or, you know, you know, family that isn't real serious and out there every day and that sort of thing. But yep. Um, that's an affordable piece of ground for your average working Joe. If mm-hmm. he can save the down payment for that, and then he can afford the monthly payments thereafter, that's the price point they're in. So in this area, that's the size parcel that most people start out with. Mm-hmm. Um, after we look at a couple of farms, the first question that most people come up with is like, Hey, you know, you seem to know a lot about this. Like, wh- where would you put food plots or what would you plant here in this area? Or, uh, where should I put my tree stands or should I have box blinds or can I, you know, mm-hmm. so that they're, they're, they're thinking practical hunting questions. And that's like, there's a transition that happens somewhere in there from like somebody who's just a consumer, just, just the hunter, mm-hmm. uh, which we all grew up being and just hunting on somebody else's land. But once you actually own it and it's like, well, all of a sudden, there's all kinds of things that you could do to a property aside from just think about hunting it. Yeah. How can you develop that property so that it, you can hunt as good as it possibly can. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not instantaneous for most people when they buy a piece that like they already immediately go into that land manager mindset and think, I got to, I got to come up with a plan. I got to figure out how to develop this property. I want every acre of this farm to produce as well as it possibly can. Mm -hmm. And you know, so it's usually, uh, six to 12 months later or 18 months later, once they've hunted it a season and they're starting to figure out the property. And then all of a sudden their gears start going about like, man, like, how can I, uh, you know, this is okay. But, you know, I used to hunt a piece by permission that was three times this or five times the size or whatever. And it hunted way better than my 40 does. What am yeah. I doing wrong? So there's, uh, there's a lot of things that I would introduce a buyer to when they're first, uh, getting closed on a piece that's like, don't wait. It would be my first piece of advice to them. It's like, don't think, well, I just want to, uh, I want to wait maybe a couple of years. I don't want to make any major changes and really shake it up. Like, okay, I get that. Like take, if you're, especially if you buy in the summer or headed right, you know, a week before the season starts, <laughs> right. hunt it, you know, don't run in there and do something crazy right away. Figure out where the low holes in the bucket are, mm-hmm. you know, what issues you have on the farm that need addressed, figure out how the deer are currently using the property. And then that'll educate you a lot about what to do next. Yep. But you should start immediately on planning, you know, and, and a lot of the, like the improvements, uh, when we do habitat consultations and things like that, looking at properties, people have uh, hunted a property for five or 10 years, owned the property for five or 10 years, and still have not done one single thing that adds long-term value. Because a lot of the land management improvements that you make, they don't just bear fruit in six weeks yeah, or right. even you know 
two years. Mm -hmm. It's like you're going to do things year one or within the first 18 months of owning the property that are going to make that property way, way better five years from now, eight years from now, 10 years from now. They're going to add value to the property. They're going to make it hunt better. They're going to raise the carrying capacity. They're going to add cover. They're going to, it's going to change a lot in that yeah. period of time, but it won't change at all really if you don't start. So gotcha. yeah. people wait way too long to do some of those long-term improvements. Okay. I th and I think that's why food pots are so, they're so popular. You go in there and you're seeing results as soon as, I mean, right. a, a week or you two feel, after you, you plant. You feel positive about what really is a short-term yeah. Payback, it's, I guess. Yeah, it, it's uh, instant gratification. Yeah. yeah. It's like, so that's a low-hanging fruit. They think like, well, there's no food plots on this property right now. I can do that this first summer, and it's instantly going to hunt better. I'm going to enjoy the property. And okay, there's nothing wrong necessarily with doing that, mm -hmm. other than a lot of people never cross the threshold into the next step of that that land management evolution. Yep. They start with a kill plot and whatever, and then mm -hmm. they think that's my process. Every year in May, I go out and, and I spray and I till something up and then, you know, and they run the cameras through the summer and then fall, they maybe plant a little fall, you know, cereal grain plot or something, you know, yeah. uh, put in a couple little honey holes and then, and that's all they ever do. That becomes, that becomes the norm. That's their process and they put that on a calendar and then that's all they ever achieve with the property mm -hmm. which long term did nothing to change the carrying capacity on the property or the way that the deer really uh how many deer you can hold on the property or yeah. anything like that it's just well now i got a spot where i can predictably hang a stand and, and shoot whatever shows right. up but let's give all of the mature deer in an area reason to want to come here, visit here or live here. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not making serious land improvements or major changes to habitat, you're not doing that with right. a couple of kill plots. Yeah. I like that you covered that. I mean, because I'm, I'm that guy. Like it feels good. I think we all are. We all are. We <laughs> so all are. We, we want, you know, we want immediate results. Yep. So like when we have done land management work for clients, we do comprehensive property management for them. They're, they're always very concerned about their food plots. And so what we usually tell them is let's address habitat first. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you're hiring a company like that, not just because, you know, you think, well, I'm just too lazy or too, I don't have time or whatever to go out and plant a food plot here or there. It's like they want somebody to really, they say, take my property to the next level. What, what do we need to do to like really make it way, way better than anything I'd be able to come up with on my own? Yeah. And in most every case, it's they're not managing their timber. Uh, they have hard edges. They have a lot of uh, lacking. Uh, there's great potential, but they're just lacking in execution or that's just like, man, mm -hmm. it just falls way short of what it could be because they're not touching uh, the native habitat. They're not doing anything with that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and that's, that's really what should feed deer and house deer and give deer every reason to want to spend time on the property. And your food plots are just kind of like icing on a cake. Gotcha. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's a side dish at best. Yeah. But if you're totally relying on that to make your property supreme hunting property, then you're like, you're way short. You're missing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be, I think someone listening would be like, okay, Chase, then what would be the first initiative? I know it probably varies by piece, but uh, if you just give a generic example, if they're, if that works out that way, what would be something someone would want to look into uh, for the long term of their property? So forest management is probably like, it, it is the most intimidating thing for most landowners. If they buy a piece that has some standing mature timber on it and they think like, hey, I can harvest some trees here and recoup some money and that's great. And maybe reinvest that or put that back to work and other, you know, recoup part of your down payment money or put it towards uh, building better trail system and, you know, reinvesting it back in the property. Mm -hmm. And it, that's great. But they just they looked at the timber basically as 
only has value if there's marketable logs and otherwise, yeah, cut those. And then what after that? Gotcha. People, most landowners who own forested acres are completely ignorant about what the value of it is. Most of them can't identify tree species. And I, I mean, I'm, it sounds like I'm being really harsh or beating up on people. I don't expect them to be experts in that. For sure. But like that's the reality of it. Most of us who own timber land don't know hardly anything about it. We don't know what the value of those trees are. Uh, we don't know which species have value to deer when they're, you know, below the browse line, six feet and below, and mm -hmm. which ones, you know, are actually still producing wildlife value once they grow beyond that. So because they don't know anything about it, it's like, but well, they never even fire up a chainsaw or thinking about cutting something or planting something because they don't, they don't know, they don't know where to even bad. start. Yeah. Right. So that is probably the, the <clears throat> biggest thing because, uh, forest forested acres in, in the Midwest are going to provide 80% or more of an animal's food supply throughout the course of the whole 12 month calendar year. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's where the majority of their time is spent, uh, bedding, browsing, chasing. I mean, it, so if you're not managing timber with a well thought out plan, you're missing, you're missing a huge component. Mm -hmm. So th the next thing would be like a lot of farms in this area are going to be mixed kind of timber tillable or timber cattle ground. So they have some, you know, some, some people are maybe buying a solid block of 40 acre trees, but there's a lot of pieces. If it's a little bit bigger than that, maybe a 40 or an 80, somewhere in between that it'll have some edge mm -hmm. and edge is like, to us, when we go into uh, implement a management plan on somebody's property, edge is one of the first places that we go in and do work on it because it's it's the. When fastest. you say edge, you're just talking like from where timber to like an opening tillable yeah. or pasture ground. transition between mature trees and open field. That's probably what we'd so say fringe or deer animals. It's like the fringes of the cover essentially. Yeah. Yep. So deer deer spend everything they really need like they're the thickest security cover is where the sunlight can get to it and help it grow so uh that 60 foot swath from where mature trees turns into open field that's where you get all of your transitional species you get uh you know younger trees smaller diameter trees shrubs native plants forbs wildflowers mm -hmm. uh, berry bushes and all that kind of stuff and then before it gets out to like either prairie or crp or cattle pasture tillable ground yeah. or whatever so that edge is like that to us is the low-hanging fruit like you say you want like immediate results from something you want to do work that you want to see like benefit from right away feathering edges and creating funnels by doing that and you, you can maximize uh, a property or maybe not maximize but let's say you can unleash a lot of potential just by going in and, and selectively cutting or spraying trees or plants within that first 60 foot. Okay. Because there's so many edges that, that have almost no wildlife benefit when in fact that should be one of the most beneficial parts of any property. Okay. So, um, species like quail and turkeys also, but, uh, deer, I mean, there's, there's so much valuable browse. That's where you get the most plant diversity is in that transitional area. Mm -hmm. So, that's one of the places that we go first and we say like, okay, what have we got here? That's good. What's bad. Let's cut, let's spray, let's do some things like that. Not a lot of expense in that. So mm -hmm. if you're, is this is a starter farm and you just kind of tapped out your savings by buying your first piece of ground, a chainsaw and a backpack sprayer, and you can make that property hunt so much better and hold so many more deer and help it, uh, create more predictable patterns because you can, you can fell trees and do things like that, that, uh, you can, pinch, you know, half a dozen trails that come out of a body of timber into an opening or a field mm -hmm. down to one or two mm -hmm. where you're catching all of the activity on one camera or from one bow stand or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, working on edges, 
is going to be if they're unless you have just an absolute solid block of timber. And in that case, look look broad scale. Let's say look uh, from twenty thousand feet and see what this property looks like compared to the surrounding area. Mm -hmm. And if the surrounding area is also a lot of timber, then create some edge. Go in and create yeah. a clear cut, or you know, fell some trees and create a pocket and opening mm -hmm. that uh, will have edge on it. I, yeah, I, that's great advice. It's stuff that is easily overlooked. I mean. I think a lot of guys go food plots, and then uh, this makes me cringe a little. I don't know if it makes you cringe. You see guys doing like, uh, what are they doing? They're they're what's like? Oh, I'm drawing. I can't get my words together. They're cutting hinge trees, cut. hinge cutting. Yeah. And to me, I I see hinge cutting as I don't want to cut the wrong trees, and I'm scared to do it in the wrong spot because it's you can, from my perspective, it seems like you can really screw. A piece of timber up if you do it incorrectly you can do a lot of damage if you don't know what you're doing for sure yeah, yeah. and then you see guys doing it on social media that you're just like oh i don't know i'd rather i'd probably call a professional in. don't go in there and just start hinge cutting just a hinge cut like there's got to be a method to your madness there's certain species yeah. in a certain way you're supposed to do well, the species yeah. there's probably like where your stands are located to wherever you're going to hinge cut wind direction thermals all that probably plays in right from a hunting standpoint yeah i mean um there, it's not the. I get frustrated with that whole topic because mm -hmm. it's not rocket science. It's just you, you get like two different two different uh, schools there. Some people that are so scared of it that they just won't do it. Mm -hmm. Other people that just think like, oh, that's the magic pill, and all, that's all I got to do, and I'll just run out there with my saw and I'll just hinge cut, <laughs> hinge cut everything. It's all better now. <laughs> it's all hinge it's cut. Like, yeah. It's neither one is right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. There, there definitely is a, a balance, but it's not. Uh, it's so learnable you know and mm. i mean youtube is your friend but um the tree tree species identification is probably step one i know? need to brush the, up on my tree it, species it, so what i told it i did a consultation this has been several years ago for a guy uh and he called me a couple of months later and he's like i got your plan uh all the notes that i took when you were here walking the farm with me and i i i haven't started on any of the hinge cut stuff this winter or any of the uh tsi work because i just I'm so intimidated. I walk around with my manual and my cell phone and I'm trying to like, oh, what the heck tree is this? And just, I'm so scared I'm going to cut the wrong stuff that I don't cut anything. So I just like, you know, <laughs> yeah. paralysis by over analysis. And I'm yeah. like, well, your timber is probably 40% hedge and locust. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. it was fallow cattle pasture at one point. I said, so we talked about that uh, at length and neither one of those species is going to do anything for your habitat quality. So they need to go regardless. Yeah. So you got a lot of cutting to do. If you don't ever learn to identify another tree, just go kill the hedge and kill the locust. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, you're 35% of the way there. Yeah. And he's like, well, I, I guess I really didn't even think about that. I was just looking at it like acre by acre by acre. I needed to, I got to do this, you know, comprehensively in this area. It's like, well, that's still at least one step in the right direction. For sure, yeah. So you you learn as you go, but don't let, like, oh, I don't know everything, so I just won't start. I won't do anything. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, if there's something that provides absolutely zero benefit, know that I can, I know how to kill that. So let's work on just that. Right. And, right. it, you know, and then as you get, the more of it you do, the more comfortable you get with it, the, oh, well, now I know what that species is and that's good. So I leave those. I'm not, that's one less that I need to worry about accidentally cutting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're overwhelmed by it, just take the take it one bite at a time, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good that's a good advice. Is uh, this might be a dumb question, but I genuinely don't know because I don't know anything about tree species. And I feel like you when I'm hunting with Austin, 
you're like spouting out what every plan is, I feel like. I was a biology major, so okay. I, I know a few trees. I'm, I'm not on the level that Chase is, but See, I know a few. I feel like I I almost am like embarrassed. I got in the woods. I'm like, I don't know what kind of tree that is. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you got a tree and a whatever it is. I'm like, yeah, sure. I know locusts because they'll stab you, but and I know hedge. Yeah. But um, are they native? Is hedge and locust native? They're not? Well, so, yes, uh, honey locust is. Hedge is not. But Okay. Um, Honey, we would have never had honey locust to the extent that we have here if it hadn't been for out. It likes disturbance. So when you mm -hmm. run cattle through a body of timber, mm -hmm. they'll eat off most of like your oak regeneration and cherry and uh, even like young maples. And it, they, they browse, you know, they're, they don't discriminate like deer do, mm -hmm. but they eat almost everything except stuff that they absolutely hate, which is like locust yeah. and edge. Yeah. So when you run cattle in timber that's the result. You end up with species that should be like less than 1% of composition and they're making up 30 or 40%. Yep. Oh, interesting. Because honeysuckle is non-native as well, right? Right. Is yeah. it? So, someone told me that now they consider it native. They lie. They lie. Okay. <laughs> I don't consider it. Okay. Who yeah. are these people? I want to yeah. know. I'll, I'll, I'll get you some phone numbers here. <laughs> because that's probably, I hunt a farm that's all locust and all, not all, all hedge and like honeysuckle. And you can't even go into like, what is the timber? Yeah. It's just miserable. You can't go in it. So, so I get that comment quite a bit when somebody is used to hunting, uh, especially if they grew up and this is not a necessarily knock at, at gun hunters. I grew up gun hunting. Mm. Nobody in my family bow hunted, but, um, at some point, it becomes common knowledge for the guys, especially if they only are out there during gun season. Mm -hmm. They're just like, well, that's where all the big bucks are. You know, they're in that that draw that's so full of just multifloral rows and yeah. uh, locust and hedge. And it's it's the thickest, gnarliest briar patch that a deer could retreat to for right. security cover because he knows humans in the right mind don't want to go in there after him. Mm -hmm. So that's where they go to. And so... People, if you're only ever out there really gun hunting, that's when you're like, well, that's where I need to be. That's where that's the best habitat. It's, actually, no, that's pathetic. That is terrible. <laughs> I habitat. love it. I don't even call that habitat. <laughs> it, I mean, it's a it's wasteland, waste acres, because it, it doesn't provide really anything for them aside from security cover. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, some people then have that misconception that like, well, that's that's best deer habitat. And it's like, absolutely not. But yeah, yeah. You have to. Uh, you it's have like to, that old school. Two weekends a year mentality is what well, that is. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> He's the, like, more time, yeah. the more time you spend out there, uh, the more you're going to observe deer behaving like deer. You know, which was yeah. the biggest thing that drew me to bow hunting originally was like, you, you know, I didn't know like all of this stuff that happened in the deer woods. Like, for you know, other than uh, I had I had head knowledge about it, but not actual firsthand experience seeing a lot of the chasing, a lot of the seeking, a lot of yeah. because I never hunted the rut, before, right? You right. know, when I was growing up, so it was like you learn so much more out there watching deer behave like deer mm -hmm. through the whole archery season. Um, so then you kind of you know, if you're observant, you're seeing like, well, what kind of plants are they feeding on? You know, or what areas do they really go to? Are the is the acorn drop a big deal in your area, or is it not? Mm -hmm. And you know, gun hunters, I think in general, miss a lot of that stuff because you know a lot of the crops are already gone, and they're you know their things are. Uh, when they hit the woods, everybody's in the woods, and the deer kind of just freak out for a week. Yeah, they might just be moving because they have to move. Right. Type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the behavior totally changes. We all know that. So, 
it's yeah if that's your only exposure to it it's really hard to figure out you know okay if you only gun hunt don't tell chase about habitat <laughs> <laughs> there's probably an exception out there so you know people in southern states they have rifle seasons that go like five months or something so yeah like, right okay they, yeah they yeah. they probably could see a lot broader spectrum than it but in the midwest or places like michigan or wisconsin or someplace where like gun season is like world war ii or three you know it's uh it's a lot different. Yeah, deer movement's not really deer movement during those time frames. It's more like it's retreat. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, pretty it's, much what it is. The push. Man, there, there's so many things I want to dive into, like in separate episodes right now, out of my own like questions. Um, say someone does have a piece that's mostly hedge and honeysuckle. Do you just get an excavator in there with a shredder and just eliminate it, or like oh, what's man. what? what it, what's like how do you tackle that? Because I think a lot of guys hunt rows or pieces of property that's yeah probably all that type of stuff so so if i buy a piece that's like that say about a 40 acre piece that's like almost solid hedge and honeysuckle and you know a handful of other keeper trees mm -hmm. and a little bit of edge or something uh i'm i'm a habitat snob i'm gonna i will confess that openly to people i would not expect most people to manage it the way that i would mm -hmm. it would drive me crazy to i could hardly enjoy hunting it sitting in a stand and just looking <laughs> around and all this thing, like oh that all needs to die and i yeah. need to plant this in its place but most people don't you know i would not recommend that most people do that because they don't they're gonna totally disrupt how that property hunts they're gonna change it and it's you're talking about long-term development work that's gonna take years to really come to full potential would, mm -hmm. would i be much happier if i ripped a lot of that stuff out or, or killed it now and replanted and then 10 years down the road would it be a much better property absolutely yeah but most people if that especially if that's their only piece of ground or that's you know they've worked their tails off to get to the point where they could just afford this you can't expect them to completely like i don't want to say ruin a property but yeah. to like make it not nearly as good as what they want it to be mm -hmm. for that long of a period of time for sure no you yeah. know i mean that's not reasonable so I would say um, focus on where the biggest issues are. And if that happens to be locust, then go in there and girdle a whole bunch of locust trees and don't ever cut a locust without treating it with herbicide because you'll just piss it off. So, <laughs> really? Yeah. So so cut and treat them and then, uh, you know, let nature kind of take its course. You don't have to fell every one of them. You can girdle or, or whatever, but just yeah. uh, thin those trees so that sunlight comes in that something else could take. Basically, you're just kind of, you're shaking, shaking a cup full of dice every time you, you know, you, you don't know necessarily what's going to come up underneath of there, yeah. when, but when you let sunlight in, something's going to come you're up. You're creating opportunity. Right. And yeah. it's likely, even if it's more locust, it's going to be young locusts. So it's, it's yeah. something that has more value to uh, wildlife than that mature tree did. Mm hmm so where did locusts come from like hell or something like that <laughs> yeah pretty sure <laughs> yeah. Pretty god, sure. god was po'd the day he made a locust tree well, yeah yeah, yeah. genesis actually says that uh that uh, thorns are a gift to remind us of sin so <laughs> okay if, if, if i've been punked by a lot of locusts yeah, right <laughs> it's like oh man you're gonna remember that i gotta call chase <laughs> that's what i'll think every time i get poked by a locust um i mean i know guys that have slipped climbing stands and had them go through their hand and i don't know what yeah. type of pollen's on them but it's, it's, I don't know, it's nasty. Though. Yep, they are not fun. Well, okay, so I need to learn more about it. So this is like a super fun interview for me because like in my head, it's like, man, if you could get a piece and that's all it had, because I hunt a piece that's all mm -hmm. hedge. It's mostly hedge. And I just want to bring an excavator in there with a shredder and just wipe it all out and plant something different. But, um, okay, so talking about um, fringe management, food plots to fringe management, more of like a long-term thing. 
Um, what what else could someone be looking at besides something like that, or is that like just the basic start to yeah. long term management? So right if there? we're yeah, if we're we're still looking at like fifty acres and under, mm-hmm. um, a lot of that I would say you you need to look beyond your property because you know a, a deer's core area, even let's say a mature deer, a lot of times is going to be at least. 80 plus. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some cases where it might be like you got a buck that spends almost all of his time in a 20 acre little patch. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, a, more a mature, yeah, let's say like a, a one to two year old buck is going to spend his core area might be 640 acres, a square mile. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, he might go two, three, four miles out and beyond that at times. But where he spends most of his time is on one section, basically. Yeah. And it, as he goes from two and a half to three and a half, that area a lot of times shrinks in half. So down to about 320 and then four and a half, five and a half, et cetera. It cuts in half almost every time. Mm-hmm. So until you get at least to 80 acres or maybe a little less. So, but if you only own 40 acres, you know, unless he is like his primary bedding area is smack dab in the middle of your property. It's like, you don't own that deer. Yeah. Uh, and you sure don't own most of the other deer that are crossing your right. farm. No matter what you think so, your trail cams tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I got him pegged. I know yeah. where's that. He's mine. So, so you, you have to look out beyond that and to give like, it's not a, there's not one prescription that says that's what I, that's what you yeah. would do on that property. Unless you're looking at the big picture, which is where deer are spending all of their time. Mm-hmm. And what do your neighbors have? What, what's half a mile down? You guys know Grant Woods. Mm-hmm. So Grant Grant coined this like years ago and it stuck with me. And uh, and I've heard other people say it since then. And maybe somebody said it before Grant, but I still give him credit for it. But he he will go on consultations or go on you know seminars and stuff and tell people like, you don't need the best habitat in the world. You just need your property to be that much better than your neighbors. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of he's kind of right. I mean, I again, habitat is to think about. Okay. Yeah. I, I want my property to be the best that it can be just, you know, because I, I feel like, well, anything short of that, and I'm just wasting, I'm wasting square footage. I'm, I'm paying for it. You know, mm-hmm. it could be better if, if it is, or it can be better than within my resources and time. Like, why isn't it better? So I, I'm, I'm all about developing the whole property, but really you should be looking at what's available to the deer. And I'm not just talking yeah. about like, well, this guy plants food plots over there. So I got to, you don't want to get into a food I got to plant a bigger food right. plot. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. You, nobody wins. Yeah, I mean, it, it becomes the point where like, if your whole section is just littered up with food plots, you're, you're missing, all of you are missing the big picture. Mm-hmm. You should be looking at it like that guy's not managing his timber at all. He's got food plots. He has no warm season grasses. His edges are all hard. They go from 60 foot tall trees to open field. Mm-hmm. So what can you offer the deer that is part of what they need that will get them to spend time on, you, you know, I like you get that. Into just a battle about planting food plots because he's got a food plot. You, you're yeah. not gonna be happy with the results. So offer something that the surrounding area doesn't have that deer need and want. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not a food plot at all. Maybe you need all of your open areas should be established in switchgrass or some sort of yeah. you know, thermal cover, mm-hmm. or uh, maybe you can put in a fruit orchard, you know, something like that. That's again, a long-term improvement plan it now. And you're probably not expecting to get apples for at least five years. But once you have an orchard that's dropping apples, you'll draw bucks from like miles away. Mm-hmm. If there's nothing else like that in their area, I mean, yeah. they get a taste of it at some point through the year when they're walking through, right, right. all of a sudden showing up on camera or right in front of your stand, you know, when you got apples hitting in like the second or third week of October, like money, where the heck did that deer come yeah. from? You know, <laughs> they're like, leaving everything to come to yeah. that. Yeah. Don't you have a piece Austin that's got an apple tree on it? One tree. One, it's one apple tree. It's one tree. And some years it produces and some years it doesn't. But when it does, I mean, it draws deer that I like to say deer that you've never seen before. They'll come rolling in. So I have like a mixed, uh, this is, I don't want to go too far into this, but I, it might be worth it. I hunted near 
a place growing up where there was a lot of apple trees. Like an, there was a full blown orchard. So I and I don't feel like it made that big a difference. But I also it's a, it was like a commercial orchard. So I think when they picked the apples, they were gone. Mm-hmm. So that might be why I don't have like this. I need to plant an apple tree type feel. Yeah, you know. Um, but I mean, I saw deer in there, but it wasn't like crack like to to the deer like you would think like how you right you talked about but i think it's because when they the apples were mature they were ready they went in and just wiped them all out because they're selling them mm-hmm. so that might be it i don't know but that that's just my experience too and i was younger so yeah well people think that about cropland too i mean if you look way outside your area and you're not in an area that's dominated with a lot of row crop uh and you've got one or two guys that have some corn or some beans or something it's going to be a whole lot different scenario than like for sure right in this area where, you know, 80% of the landscape is corn and beans. So, you know, you can plant corn Concentrate and Concentrate them to a, to a right. spot, yeah. Yep. You're not going to notice the same kind of excitement or, you know. Are fruit trees a majorly overlooked uh, management tool? I I feel like they are. Um, I I definitely feel like they are. I think to me, uh, you can do – now, it's, it's far from one of the first – pieces of the puzzle as far as I'm concerned. Like I, I wouldn't run in there. Like if I know I'm going to develop an entire property and I'm going to, I want, you know, to leave no box unchecked within the first 12 months, I'm going to identify the location where I want a fruit orchard and I'm going to start establishing it Okay. because I know after that, it's kind of like a set it and forget it thing. You it's just there. And then, it, yep, yeah. And it's going to be five, six, seven years before it really amounts to anything. So mm-hmm. if I keep waiting to do it, that just puts it that much further down yeah. the timeline before it does anything for you. So mm-hmm. I would get it going sooner than later, but then I would shift my attention real quick back to everything else that uh, is probably higher priority. Yeah. It's just when you know the timeline of how long it takes certain things to develop, well, then you got to do that first. Right. You know? Yeah. So yeah. Even the long term investment of it. And yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, are they worth having? Yeah. You know, I love it. But uh, it's not for every property. And especially like if I was on the same section as some commercial orchard, then no, I was probably (laughs) not going to be as effective. (laughs) No, not even close. I'm going to plant peaches instead. (laughs) Just like you're not going to win the food war with the guy that, you know, has 500 acres and plants, you know, 40 some acres of food plots. Like, I'm not saying don't have a food plot, but don't think that that's going to just be some. It's not the cure all. No. And it's not because you're not going to impress the local deer. Right. (laughs) Right, They're still going to probably spend most of the time over there. It's like if you have a, if there's a row of bars downtown, why? Why are people going to your bar? Maybe you got the ladies. Maybe you got atmosphere. I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? Right. So yeah. I, for, for you guys, I, that's a Clint Casper comparison right there. <laughs> that's what I did. Clint's always comparing the rut to eye-pumping girls at the bar downtown. Yeah. Like, There's a lot of similarities there. The there night, is. The nightclub scene. The nightclub scene. What, yeah. what, what type of vibe are you putting out on your property? I think the biggest thing to talk about when – we talk about food plots and all all these other food sources is diversity is king. If you if you have multiple food sources for that herd, it's going to hold deer longer on your farm. I mean, whether it's trees, food plots, browse, I mean, planting shrubs, whatever you're doing to create diversity on your farm, that's going to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Always. So, um, can we talk a little bit about acorns? Because is this a... You, you just smiled immediately when I said <laughs> acorns. So I'm like... Well, well, How's Chase feel? I'm going to work over the series of episodes I want to do with you now, because this is just like opening ideas for me to ask you questions. I'm going to find out what gets you worked up. And then we're just going to do deep dives on that. And I'm just, (laughs) I just want you to let it all out. So So. I I love oak trees, uh, but acorns provide almost no nutritional value Mm -hmm. for deer. So from, from a, 
uh, standpoint of I'm going to feed deer with this, eh, I yeah. mean, it's, they're carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And so they really don't get anything else that's really valuable to them out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they fall in, in, say, like October and, you know, they're eating them October and first couple of weeks in November or whatever before the snow hits the ground. Mm-hmm. And they need those carbohydrates. They need to maximize how much body fat they can keep on them going into winter. So yeah. they're they're good and they're bad. And it, uh, I'll mention his name again because he's... He is... Uh, He's one of the guys. Well, he is one of the guys, but like... So Grant is in the middle of the Ozark Mountains. I mean, he's surrounded by 100,000 acres of oak forest. Mm-hmm. So he hates oak trees. Like, he hates acorns. Yeah. He's just yeah. kind of like... They oh, do he's no- over them. They do nothing for him, you know? And it, it's like, yeah, are the deer eating him? Sure. But are you thinking you're going to hunt over the acorn drop in one hill versus the other? No, because they're yeah. literally everywhere. It's yeah. kind of like you said about being better than the neighbors. If you've got some acorn trees and the neighbor has nothing, you're going to see deer come in and hit your acorn trees when they're dropping. Yeah. But if you have better food than a better food source than the acorns, mm-hmm. like a diverse food source, like we yeah. were talking about. Well, I mean, part of the reason why I brought up acorns is because, you know, during that mid-October where a lot of guys drop the October lull, and that's a debatable topic right there, and a lot of guys will say, and we've talked about it in the past, uh, well, the deer are still moving, they're just on acorns close to where they're bedding, and then they're back to bed at that time, so you just don't see them. I don't know. Do you feel like that value of having acorns on your piece? Me, personally, I wouldn't be hunting in the temp deep in the timber and that time of year anyway, but yeah. Um, so, so my soft spot for oak trees, uh, is basically that if you're, if you're doing a good job of managing for, let's say predominantly an oak forest, mm-hmm. it, the wildlife in general are going to benefit so much by everything else you're doing. And so it's, it's more like you're, you're trying to build really good deer habitat and you're trying to maybe encourage more turkeys and you're trying to, uh, maybe even manage for quail. So mm-hmm. the things that you're doing, if you just targeted, like I'm just going to try to uh, maximize how many white oaks I can get in this particular patch of timber. This The strategy that you would use to go about that is as a byproduct going to produce way, way better whitetail habitat and turkey cover and, uh, and quail, etc. So it's like I look at, at managing for oaks as basically just uh, – you know, they're just an indicator species. It's like if, if that were, if I made that my goal, I would achieve so many of my other goals just as a result. I, I, yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So eight, you're not doing it just for the acorn. No, so that's I'm bigger not than all, eight. honestly. I mean, <laughs> so honestly, what's more valuable to me than the acorns are what they grow. Yeah. If I can, uh, if I can do work in a timber that lets in sunlight and lets uh, the mature acorn producing trees maximize their crown mm-hmm. so that they, you know, produce twice as many acorns the following year. And then I run a prescribed fire through the timber or something like that to get rid of leaf litter. Mm-hmm. Those acorns that hit the ground that don't get eaten are going to germinate. And then they produce incredibly valuable browse. So mm-hmm. you have, you know, oak trees just on the forest floor that are two to four feet tall, that's amazing habitat. Okay. And that's what I'm after when I'm trying to, I'm not, I don't care honestly about the acorns that land on the ground that the deer are going to eat. I mean, that's not at all yeah. my goal, but I mean, it's nice, I guess. And some, but again, <laughs> I know what you're saying, it, yeah, it's not, uh, that's not, there's mu- there's many more benefits to the oaks than yeah. just an acorn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I, that's overlooked too. You know, I know deer need browse. I don't know what's a real valuable type of browse versus something that's not, you know, or what do you prefer over what they don't. And 
I don't know what it might be Grant Woods talked about um, how much foliage they need um, to consume. Um, how what is it tonnage per acre or something like that? Yeah. So yeah. so so deer on average, uh, a mature animal, whether it's a doe or a buck or whatever, on average would probably be like five to seven pounds of forage per day that mm-hmm. they need. So if you said one animal, it, let's say six pounds per day times X days out of the year, you figure out how many pounds of forage per year one animal is consuming. Mm-hmm. And then you there's actually a lot of ways, there's some different uh, techniques you could use to figure out like how many estimate how many pounds of forage is this acre this particular hillside of timber producing per year Mm -hmm. and there's you know you don't you don't have to dive into all the like how do i actually measure that on my own property i mean some people get nerdy like that and want to do it but the reality is like there there are some nice photos and there's a few you know different resources out there that you could find that and look at a couple photos and say all right if my habitat looks like that i'm probably only making like 100 to 200 pounds of forage per acre per year if it looks like this it might be five or six hundred if mm-hmm. it, a really well-managed body of timber might be a thousand to twelve hundred plus gotcha. uh, pounds per year so when you think about like how many pounds does it take to feed one deer then that's looking at what you have in your habitat you can kind of come up with a rough idea of like how many deer could i actually support in here mm-hmm. if i have more deer than that then they're probably not healthy yeah you know and if i had fewer deer than that then well i could probably have more so there's is that majorly overlooked to me it seems like it is probably i mean it, i i might not be the guy to ask that question <laughs> well the name of the game I, I is just, just I don't know. the yeah, name right. of the game is just increasing carrying capacity you're trying to yeah. fit as many animals on that farm as you can so Pretty much. For sure. it, yep. some people go about it with and they, they wouldn't agree with that state i've heard people say they don't agree with that statement I agree with that statement. I guess what I would say is like, first of all, you, you can't kill what isn't there. Right. Mm-hmm. So why would any of us be upset about having the the capacity to hold more deer on the property? That means more does. It means more fawns. It means more bucks, which eventually means more mature bucks. Mm-hmm. So if your habitat is only going to, if you can only hold 20 or so deer per square mile, you might only have one or two shooters in that if you're lucky. Yeah. But if you can have you know, 40 or 50 deer per square mile, then your numbers go up. So yep. it's like, mm-hmm. it, then it's just a matter of like, well, that means more mouths. So it means more does that you probably need to kill or yeah. you're going to, yep. you know, potentially screw up your sex ratio if you don't, if you're not harvesting enough does. And I think that's where people hesitate maybe to like, well, if I just do that and I c- you hear people use the term doe factory, mm-hmm. I'm just going to make my property so good for does. And then that's all I'll see is does. And it's like, well, yeah shoot more does. <laughs> right. Keep that ratio where it needs it's, to be. Yeah. yeah. Or start talking to your neighbors and mm-hmm. talk to them about what you're seeing and like, Hey, I'm trying to do this, which is, you know, benefiting you. But as a result, we have more does and I can't kill enough. So that's something I think jury outdoors did a really good job. I remember like, you know, they talked about doe, like you see them shooting a lot of does where mm-hmm. a lot of other shows in that time period, you didn't see anybody shooting does, but you see Mark and Terry, Shoot, just shooting several does in the early season or whatever they need, whenever they need to manage them. I've always shot a lot of does. I think it's fun and they taste delicious. And you know what I mean? That's what we, red meat is what we live on, venison. So, I mean, you shoot a couple of does a year, don't you, Austin? Oh, five or six. Yeah. I mean, oh, it's that many. I yeah. I, I like to see a one or two doe to buck ratio on my farms. That's what I like to see. It just creates an overall healthier herd when you have that even balanced ratio. So, that's yeah. kind of my biggest goal on my farms. Yeah. I don't know. I still, that's probably that old schooler. The guy you're talking about earlier, the hedge habitat, don't shoot does. Is that's kind of like that type of related 
yeah, mindset, so, I guess. Yeah. Well, quality deer management, when that term kind of became more uh, commonplace or household, it, it didn't take here like it did down south because down there they had all these huge deer clubs and they had people that were still to this day actually still hunting with dogs and and you can like they have bag limits in some of the southern states that are like you kill one deer a day the entire season so they they obviously are not afraid to shoot deer you know they they have a lot more liberal harvest limits and there's just like section after section after just solid pine timber and all this stuff yeah and up here it was like there's we tilled so much of what was good habitat so then we just kind of have fragmented slivers of habitat and forests you know river uh rivers and creeks that kind of connect it so we end up putting a lot of pressure on those areas and then it's like people are just like uh i I like to see deer i hate to shoot all so yeah you know that they, uh, there was always a reluctance for a long time, you know, in, in north of the Mason-Dixon line for people to shoot very many does. But yeah. if you have good quality habitat, it's a completely renewable resource. What we're doing is, you know, we're, we're uh, it's compensatory mortality. It's a fancy term for just, we're, whatever it is that we kill, if we didn't kill it, nature would probably have killed it for us. Mm-hmm. So yeah. You, I've never heard that term, to be honest. <laughs> I'm not honest. I never have on all the podcasts. That's never been brought up. So, so what it means basically is that uh, you know you're you're harvesting a portion of the population that nature was not going to allow to make it anyway. Yeah. But nature is ugly, and and when nature goes to kill something, it's going to be by well they become overpopulated, and then they decimate the habitat, and then they starve as a result, or they mm-hmm. get more disease because they're malnourished and whatever. Yeah. So. You know, we can have healthier deer by keeping the number at a level that's under or close to carrying capacity, but that doesn't mean you know you can raise the carrying capacity as high as you want to. Mm-hmm. Man, it's there's so there's so many questions, for, but for time frame, I want to dive into. But yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of shooting does. I think it's important. Um, plus, it's great practice. I mean, there's a lot of benefits. It's just to fun. It. It's just fun, <laughs> and I don't really need to explain it any further. You know, people that are here that know they're here because they're a deer hunter or they're maybe wanting to learn about what we're talking about. But I, I tell that to some of us non hunter. It's a great time. It's healthy. It's it's necessary and it's fun. Yeah, like Chase said, it's a renewable resource. I mean, if you do it the right way, you're keeping your herd in balance. Yeah, don't kill all the does. Right. You're you're <laughs> you're doing it with some education, right? You're yeah. trying to maintain that two or one to one ratio, mm-hmm. and you're going out and having fun and taking care of some problems. Yeah. yeah. My kids, uh, when we're watching does out in front of the blind, or even even checking trail cameras and stuff, and they see like big mature doe. They, they judge does by how many tacos they think it'll make. <laughs> like, I, mean, I wish I was making that up. But that's awesome. They'll, they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's about 140. That's about 140, 140 tacos. tacos. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I'm stealing that. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's a that's a 200 taco type. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. That's, that's raised right right there. That's our scoring system. <laughs> <laughs> how many tacos can you get out of a doe? That is good. What's um, we we do have a little time left. What's a mistake you think most people make? And, and maybe we're going backwards a little bit, or maybe this is for the next episode. What's a common mistake people make? Uh, whether it's like not considering what they do to their property for their entry exit, or maybe just going into Ramy, or what's something common you've seen? Um, I think I think the biggest thing. There's two different types of land improvements, and when people close on a, a farm for the you know or get. The, whether whether they're buying it or whether they just their landowner family member whatever somebody just finally turns them loose and is like all right go ahead manipulate the habitat do something to it mm-hmm. they they look at it uh, as if they're it's in impermanent they look at it like I need to do things that I'm going to benefit from this season because 
they doubt whether or not they're going to still have access to this property two years down the road, three years down the road. And that's mm -hmm. why most people, you know, they stick to the food plots because they're like, well, I got it at least for this season or I got, you know, they're not going to sell it in, up from under me until next year or whatever. And they get in that mindset. Then, then once they own a piece, they're still stuck in that rhythm where they don't think long term yet. Mm -hmm. It's like you're not married to that starter farm. You know, it's like that's not necessarily going to be the only piece that you ever own or uh, that even after you buy other pieces, you might keep that one or you might not. You might outgrow it. But you should be doing improvements that add value to the property down the road. Mm -hmm. They add equity. Uh, what's the point of doing all that work and spending, you know, the sweat equity and spending money on equipment and, and <clears> planting <throat> trees and doing those things if, uh, you know, if it doesn't return by adding value to the property three, yeah. four, five, ten years down the road. Mm -hmm. So go into it with the understanding that it's an investment, not just in your hunting, but in the property value. And I think uh, it will encourage you to dive into some of those longer term projects a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's the repeat offender, uh, <laughs> if that yeah. answers your question. Yeah, yeah like it does. It the does. people that get a piece and then just stick to the short term, like the yeah. low hanging fruit that they know they can get an immediate return out of just in case I don't still have this. Right. That's, that'd yeah. be like the farmer. Uh, that leases a piece of ground, but thinks I probably won't have this two, three years from now. So they don't want to put Skimp on, on the fertilizer yeah. and everything you know, else. Mine mm. it out. You know, it just doesn't get better every year. You just basically deplete it over time. But they did that because, well, I knew I'd get my return this year, but I didn't have confidence that I'd still yep. be, you know. Yeah. Yep. Interesting stuff, man. I think there's so much we could tap into by segment when it comes to like land management and even land sales and so on. Um, I think it's all interesting topics of conversation. I think more so for me now than ever, because I'm more eager to learn it um, and different opportunities coming down the line. You know, it's talk with Austin about some of your farm experiences and land experience and, and then getting to know you. It's just, it gets my brain thinking about things a different way, you know, and it brings up questions I'm genuinely interested in. So I appreciate you coming in and laying out some of this information for us and the DeerCast uh, viewers and listeners. Um, and I'm looking forward to having you back on and maybe taking one topic and diving really deep into that yeah. and uh that'll get dangerous yeah it'll get real dangerous and, but real fun i think <laughs> i think we need yeah. just a chase burn series and we'll just like <laughs> about a 10-part series yeah. and we'll just dive into each topic right yeah it's like and then we'll find out in between that series what really aggravates you so you can just like let the people know and set some things straight uh, i'll upset some people <laughs> hey, hey like we never have right <laughs> yeah like, we're good at that yeah we're good at upsetting people hey austin got you know you you won the award for upsetting people this i'm year. going for two years in a row let's see what we can <laughs> okay. do yeah coyotes man whoever would have thought <laughs> coyotes ate one of his deer and everybody hates austin the internet exploded hey like they've never they haven't hunted long enough that, that hadn't happened no, to them. that's right so well thanks but where can people find you oh gosh facebook is probably the the easiest way to reach me okay so i mean reach out to me on there shoot me some messages or whatever all my contacts on there and, and obviously we're on you know land guys we have a website uh dogwood land management dogwood outdoors is a website for that but uh cool. they can reach out either you know i don't mind answering questions and all that kind of stuff people that careful that they I know, right? <laughs> yeah. uh yeah if i don't get back to you right away it's because i'm answering other people's questions <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah right well cool man well this was a lot of fun i appreciate you coming in to do this yeah i had fun too you had to drive a long way to the studio you bet <laughs> Always like recording with local guys, man. That's it's super fun. Supporting the community. 
Austin, you got some farming to do. I do, and I actually might try to do that this afternoon, so I better get back and check the fields. And you know what else? You're tagged out on turkeys. Tagged out, three turkeys with a bow. You stud. Yeah. Guess how many turkeys I've killed this year. Hey, it's soon to be one. <laughs> we got turkey palooza coming up. This weekend, turkey palooza. <laughs> and I'm taking... Mark Jury talked me into taking the old shotgun out. Turkeys are meant to be shot in the face with a shotgun. I don't disagree. Yep. No shame <laughs> yeah. whatsoever. Hey, <laughs> we're there to have a good time. So, all right. Thanks, Chase. Thank it you. A, it was a ton of fun. Thanks, everyone, watching, listening, doing what you do. Comment, like, subscribe, give us a rating, especially in DeerCast. Support the platform for the Deer Hunter. That's what we need, especially with the, the Facebooks and the Instagrams. Twitter, I think, is on the right track. But... uh DeerCast, support it. Be there. You know what to do. Go shoot a giant. We love you. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.